hppodcraft.com. But true or not true, your brother is a scoundrel. No man, no decent man, tells such things. He did not tell me. How dare you suppose it? I found the letter in his desk, and she being my friend and you being her lover, I never thought there could be any harm in my reading her letter to my brother. Give me back the letter. I was a fool to tell you. Ida Helmont held out her hand for the letter. Not yet, I said as I went to the window. The dull red of a London sunset burned on the paper as I read in the quaint, dainty handwriting I knew so well and had kissed so often. Dear, I do, I do love you, but it's impossible. I must marry Arthur. My honor is engaged. If he would only set me free, but he never will. He loves me so foolishly. But as for me, it is you I love, body, soul, and spirit. There is no one in my heart but you. I think of you all day and dream of you all night. And we must part. And that is the way of the world. Goodbye. Yours, 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 Elvia. That is the beginning of the story, From the Dead, a short, weird tale by Edith Nesbitt. Yes, it is actually a weird one for once, and it kicks off our month of weird women. Woohoo! We incorporate female authors into our show pretty regularly, actually, but every once in a while, it's time to push away that hyper-masculinity of cannibal stories and Pat Oswalt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hyper-masculine. Yeah, I know. And restore some balance because uh, most of our months are creepy guy months. Yes, that's true. I do have to admit. Uh, and so today we're doing Edith Nesbitt. Next week it's The Eyes by Edith Wharton. And then a two-parter on Don't Look Now by Daphne du Maurier. Looking yep. forward to all of it. Who is that reader we heard at the top? Oh, that reader is none other than Rachel Lackey. If you want to hear more of Rachel be awesome, you should check her out on her podcast, Rachel Watches Star Trek, where she watches Star Trek even though she doesn't really like it. <laughs> Do you think she's liking it more now? I think she likes it more and she understands it, but she would not watch it if it wasn't for the show, for sure. Right. She doesn't have that childhood connection to it. No. But, man, I'm, I'm loving it. I love going back and watching <laughs> these things. I'm totally, totally into it. It's great. But, Rachel, she's super funny and her take on it is always entertaining. I highly recommend checking it out. Rachel watches Star Trek at rachelwatchesstartrek.com. Get into it, you fools. <laughs> Speaking of connections, there is a connection between where you live and the author of this story, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, now, Edith Nesbitt is a big deal here in Yorkshire because her book, The Railway Children, was a huge success. And it was set in Yorkshire, and the film, which was done in the 70s, was shot on my local steam railway, the KWVR, which is the Keithley Worth Valley Railway. That's awesome. And, th and that's a children's book, right? Yeah. I think it's like some kids trying to prove the innocence of their imprisoned father. When I read the synopsis, I went, wait, is this a children's book? That's right. It is. Because <laughs> it's yeah. like there's some dark stuff happening in it. But. She's a well-known children's author, uh, but she liked spooky stuff as well. Uh, a little history on her. She was born in 1858 in Kennington, Surrey. Uh, she traveled around with her family when she was young, so she lived all over Europe. But when she was 17, her family moved back to London. At 18, Edith Nesbitt met a bank clerk, Hubert Bland. She got pregnant and married Hubert Bland. <laughs> Strangely, they didn't move in together right away, and he still lived with his mother. Also, right. this guy was a jerk. Turns out he was engaged to someone else. He had gotten pregnant. Mm -hmm. Not putting things together, however, Edith found out that her friend, Alice Hodson, was pregnant and unmarried. 
Yeah, no, so, but I, I had the same impression at first that this, uh, someone else he'd gotten pregnant was was Alice. But actually, I think it's a, a whole other woman. You think, it, what? Really? I think there was one fiancé who got pregnant and then also Alice was pregnant. Oh, no. So this is what it said. It, it said, early on, Nesbitt discovered that another woman believed she was Hubert's fiancé and had also born him a child. A more serious blow came later when she discovered that her good friend Alice Hosen was pregnant with Hubert's child. So I made the same mistake where I thought they were talking about one, like, that she discovered it later and it's oh. the same thing. But, and this is all coming from Wikipedia, drink. So <laughs> I went to the um, Edith Nesbitt Society page uh-huh. to say, oh, they, they probably have a, a biography there yeah. to try and confirm this. And it's funny, they don't mention anything about this stuff in her bio. Uh, this behind the scenes <laughs> stuff. And then I kind of felt bad for gossiping. Sure. But then I felt better. So I kept looking and uh, there was an article <laughs> all about this stuff. It was called Five Children and, or it is called Five Children and a Philandering Husband, E. Nesbitt's Private Life. Uh, it was from the paper, The Telegraph. It was by Ben Lawrence. And this is what it said. She met and married bank clerk Hubert Bland and started a family. Bland was a rogue. He had fathered a child out of wedlock in his teens ah. and later seduced one of Nesbitt's friends, Alice Hotz. Oh, okay. So, yeah, somewhere else there's a whole other kid. Oh, my God. But what's crazy is what happened with Alice. Yeah, so Edith arranged for Alice to move into her house as a housekeeper, and Edith would say that the child was hers. But she then discovered that Hubert Bland was the father. <laughs> yeah, she was just doing a solid for her friend at first, and then she realizes it's her own husband that's the yeah. father. It's crazy. So when she found out, she was going to kick Alice out of the house, but Hubert said that he would divorce her if she did, so he just finally agreed. And note, Hubert knocked Alice up again 13 years later. And Edith adopted that child as well. Yeah. So by the end of it, she had three kids of her own and two from Alice all living in the same house. Uh, And there was a lot more interesting stuff from this article. I'm just going to read it real quick. Mm -hmm. Unable to rely on her feckless husband, she threw herself into a precarious regime of hack work, short stories, poems, essays, which was both an economic necessity and a creative refuge. Eventually, her diligence paid off when in 1899, the story of the treasure seekers featuring the attempts of the Bastable children to restore the family fortunes became a bestseller. But her sequence of fantasy novels comprising Five Children and It, The Phoenix and the Carpet, and The Story of the Amulet mm-hmm. is her greatest and most influential achievement. Those are all from the early 1900s. The five children are all based on Nesbitt's own brood, who in the first story encounter the grumpy Samiad, or Sand Fairy, in a gravel pit, who grants them wishes that will last for the day. The magic is messy and the results often hilarious as the children grow wings and end up trapped at the top of a bell tower or encounter American Indians and are only saved from scalping by the onset of sundown. (laughs) The bickering and shortcomings of the children are wonderfully real and Nesbitt described them thus. The children were not particularly handsome, nor were they extra clever, nor extraordinarily good. But they were not bad sorts on the whole. In fact, they were rather like you, Mm. which I thought was funny. Yet at the same time, they are idealized (laughs) in their normality. The saintly mother and jolly father could be seen as a counterpoint to the Bland's erratic parenting. So Edith was a Marxist socialist, and she started the Fabian Society in 1884. The Fabian Society was kind of about more electing people with socialist views and not like violent overthrow. Just more of a progressive political organization. Yeah. And they were among the founders. They actually had named one of their sons Fabian. Mm Mm-hmm. After the society, and here, this is terrible. Here's some more from that article I was reading. It's some tragic news about him. In 1900, it was agreed that Fabian, who had been suffering from bouts of ill health, would have his tonsils removed. 
The day of the operation arrived, and the doctor carried out the operation at the Bland's home, Well Hall. The boy was given an anesthetic, and the doctor, deeming the operation a success, departed. But Fabian never woke up. Later transpired that he had choked on his own vomit as a result of his parents forgetting that he was forbidden from eating for 24 hours before the operation. Uh, Nesbitt, who had tried to warm his small body with candles and hot water bottles, was inconsolable. I think that moment's going to play into the story a little bit. No wonder that in Five Children and It, it is Fabian's fictional alter ego, Robert, mischievous, ingenious, adored, who steals the limelight. Through her writing, Nesbitt was trying to overcome her grief and quite possibly her guilt. Uh, Nesbitt's success had meant that the Blands were able to enjoy financial stability. They were also at the forefront of modest political thought, as you were saying, active in the Fabian Society. Mm -hmm. Members such as George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, and Sidney and Beatrice Webb would be entertained at Well Hall, Mm -hmm. where esoteric discussion and larky theatrical pageants echoed through the rooms. So I thought that was pretty interesting, the rubbing elbows with all these prominent literary figures. Mm -hmm. Uh, It says, These forward-thinking ideas, however, did nothing to improve the atmosphere of the family home, which remained an arena of disharmony and peculiarly fluid, un-Edwardian domestic arrangements. Mm -hmm. Things came to a head when, in 1908, Rosamond, and that was the daughter, that's Alice's daughter, Mm -hmm. attempted to elope with the notoriously priapic Wells. So H.G. Wells tried to run off with the the, the daughter. Yeah, I didn't read that. So Bland (laughs) intercepted them at Paddington Station, where he did what any gentleman would have done and thumped him, Wells, there being no no horse whips to hand. Whoa. So Hubert put the beat down on H.G. Wells at one point. Wow. <laughs> I was sad because when I first read that passage, I thought they were talking about her. Oh, like yeah. she showed up to the station and beat up H.G. Wells. And I was going to say, this all came out fine because she got to beat up H.G. Wells. No, <laughs> it was the jerky bland that did it. So Hubert Bland died in 1914. And three years later, she married this guy, Thomas the Skipper Tucker. I hope that was a good marriage. Yeah, I hope so too. She wrote the Bastable series of books, The Railway Children, The Enchanted Castle, The Magic City, uh, but she also wrote some scary books, Grim Tales and Something Wrong, to name a few. This story, From the Dead, was in Grim Tales, which was published in 1893. Cool. So let's get into the story. The narrator of the story is Arthur. He begins his tale in media res with a discussion. He is talking to Miss Ida Helmott, She brought him a letter that was written to her brother, Oscar. In that letter, Alvira professes her love for Oscar, but says that she must marry Arthur. And just like that story about Wells getting beaten down, I at first thought this narrator was a woman. I didn't realize it was Arthur. So I thought, whoa, is this about a lesbian affair? I thought the same thing. Did you? Well, then I reread it and I was like, oh, no, this is about me being sexist. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's a female author. So I guess I just thought the main character was a woman initially. I don't know. I did it too. Or maybe it's in the way it's written. I'm glad to hear that you heard that as well. Well, I think it's because it's a female author. I did. I made that assumption that the protagonist would be female. My mistake. My mistake as well. But okay. Arthur is engaged to Elvire, Mm -hmm. but Elvire loves this guy, Oscar. Oscar's sister Ida is letting Arthur know what's up. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on. And Ida feels like she should be rewarded for helping out, you know, yeah. for showing him this letter. She says, well, do you give me no thanks? And he says, you put a knife in my heart and then ask for thanks? He's just <laughs> angry. So Ida tells Arthur that Alvir never really loved him and his mm-hmm. anger is directed at Ida, but he quickly apologizes and asks her to post a letter in which he writes to Alvir, I give you back your freedom, the only gift of mine that can please you now. Arthur. It is a horrible thing, but really, Ida did do him a solid. Think about if somebody had done this for Edith before she married Bland, you know? Sure. If somebody had, don't do this, he's got this teenager pregnant and also your friend over here, but it (laughs) doesn't sound like any of that came out until they already got married. Yeah. There's also that thing where the messenger does get shot. Oh, yeah. It's weird because before I read this, I was just talking about that feeling, how sometimes just delivering bad news can almost ruin a relationship. Mm -hmm. A couple of times I've had business relationships mostly, but I've had 
folks give me bad news, no fault of their own, but then things just kind of drift away. You know, I had this, there was this guy who really advocated for me as a writer and mm-hmm. who got me, set me up with some different jobs, but there was one that seemed like a sure thing that he set me up for. It was going, going, going. I thought I had it. And then he had to be the one to call me and go, oh no, everything just fell apart. And I didn't get mad at him, no. but it was obviously pretty crushing news. And I know he felt really uncomfortable uh, delivering the news. And then when we got off the phone, never spoke again. Wow. You know, it's that thing where it was like, that was just such a sour taste. It, it's almost like, it made me feel like I'm so pathetic that now he doesn't want to talk to me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's just the discomfort of having to disappoint somebody, whether it's your fault or not. Sure. And that man was Harrison Ford. <laughs> That's right. Harrison, I forgive you. It's okay. I know you were just the messenger. Call me. <laughs> anyway, that's not what's going to happen here. First, Ida leaves uh, with a note that he asked her to deliver. Mm-hmm. It says, as the door closed behind her, I sank into my chair, and I'm not ashamed to say that I cried like a child or a fool over my lost plaything, the little dark-haired woman who loved someone else with body, soul, and spirit. And that's certainly something we don't see in a lot of our stories. Somebody crying. Yeah. Which is something we should see more of because everybody cries, you know. Everybody and cries like big ugly babies. <laughs> it takes it takes a lot for me to get to the like really serious crying. But I can say I get choked up at least on a pretty regular basis. Oh yeah, yeah. Ida sneaks back in and she says, "Are you so very unhappy, oh Arthur?" Don't think I'm not sorry for you. He says, I don't want anyone to be sorry for me, Miss Helmont. And I guess that's what I was talking about, that feeling of I'm pathetic, don't look at me. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. But before she leaves, she goes in and she kisses him on the forehead. And that moment, he knows that she's actually into him. Yes. And in that moment, he also calls her the beautiful Miss Helmont. So wait a minute. There's actually something going on between them. Maybe this will turn out for the better. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe he he probably wasn't really all that into his fiance anyway. You know, it's like probably one of those arrangements where it was like, okay, you know, she's pretty... She's cool, but like he's, you know, she's not making the angels sing for him. Yeah, maybe he talked himself into it. Yeah. So the next day, Arthur wakes up and he has to see Avir, just to know if all that Ida had told him was actually true. Right. Uh, So he walks over to Gower Street and he sees Alvir in front of a store. Oscar goes to greet her and they embrace. Arthur sees that they're totally into each other and then he just walks away. He doesn't even say anything to her. Yeah, which must have been an awful moment, but also at the same time it's lucky because then you don't even need to have the big confrontation. There's not much to say about it. Somebody's in love with somebody else, but thankfully he didn't have to go through the denials. Right, yeah. Eventually get to the truth. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, what's to say once it's established? Goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. You know, so this was a really nice way for it to happen, I guess. So six months later, Alvir and Oscar were married and before the year was over, Arthur and Ida were also married. He's not sure why he fell in love with her. It says, whether it was remorse for having, even for half a day, dreamed that she could be so base as to forge a lie to gain a lover, or whether it was her beauty or her sweet flattery or the preference of a woman who had half her acquaintances at her feet, I don't know. Anyhow, my thoughts turned to her as their natural home. My heart, too, took that road, and before very long, I loved her as I had never loved Elvira. Let no one doubt that I loved her, as I shall never love again. Please, God. So, this is all past tense. I loved her. So, we know that something bad has happened to Ida. I I like this little passage where he says, I I suspected Ida right away of forging that note. Mm Mm-hmm. Once I knew she loved me, but then obviously saw it was true when I witnessed that they were in love with each other. And so he wonders if he didn't go for Ida because he felt bad for having suspected her in the first place. But I think psychologically he might also be into it because maybe she did forge that note. Like he knows deep down it's dishonest, but somebody's got to be pretty into you if they're going to get into this kind of espionage and deception. Yes, I mean, I had a crush on Heather when I first met her, but it wasn't until she framed, you know, some other girls I liked and they all went to prison that I was like, wait a minute. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is the girl for me. I remember that. They're due out in two years, I think. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think about it anymore. They're just rotting away in jail. But the important thing is that we fell in love and got married. You know, That's the important thing. Their fault for you know being into me. Actually, some of them even weren't into me. They don't even know why they're in jail. <laughs> that's a whole other story. <laughs> don't get sidetracked with that stuff. Yeah, I don't want to get sidetracked. That's not interesting to anybody at all. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur really does love Ida, though. I think. I think it's a real thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. He says, there never was anyone like her. She was brave and beautiful, witty and wise, and beyond all measures, adorable. She was the only woman in the world. There was a frankness, a a largeness of heart about her that made all the other women seem small and contemptible. She loved me and I worshipped her. I married her. I stayed with her for three golden weeks and then I left her. Why? Oh man, I see. I thought they were together for longer. I just, you rereading that. Three weeks, that's all they got? Yeah. As the narrator, he tells us, you know, I was never so happy in my life than I was in those Those three weeks. Three weeks. But this night, Ida comes to him and she has a confession to make. Uh, that letter that she gave Arthur that was supposed to be written to Oscar by Elvire was a forgery. And of course, that's what he suspected all along. Mm-hmm. And he's horrified by this. He denounces Ida and he says he never wants to speak to her again. He says, at that moment, she was no longer the wife I adored. She was only a woman who had forged a letter and tricked me into marrying her. And she wants to explain there's something more to this, but he doesn't even bother to let her. He's angry, but he says it was all in the moment. He did love her, but for now, he's just all venom. He tells her that she wrecked his life and she cries silently. You know, she doesn't bawl. She just, you know, tears are just running down her face. And then she leaves the room. Arthur leaves the house and he goes for a walk on the beach and on the cliffs. Yeah, he went a little overboard there. And it's so hard when you have that anger going on to not mm-hmm. say really awful things yeah. to people. But you got to stray from hyperbole like that. She wrecked his life. I mean, things turned out pretty good, yeah. right? So you never want that to be your last conversation with somebody you love. I try to keep that in mind all the time, you know. Don't yeah. say things in anger that you're going to later regret no matter how bad you feel. Mm-hmm. And when he's walking away, he realizes he's being crazy. He writes, uh, or he says, Whatever she had done had had been done for love of me. I knew that. I would go home and tell her so. Tell her that whatever she had done, she was my dearest life, my heart's one treasure. True, my ideal of her was shattered. But even as she was, what was the whole world of women compared to her? Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, everybody, friends, family, closest loved ones, husband, wife, you know, as long as they're human, yeah, uh, they're going to disappoint you at some point, the yeah. same way you'll disappoint them at some point. Especially podcast partners. Exactly. What? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the ideal is eventually going to get shattered. This was all really interesting stuff, I felt. Yeah, it was. He heads home. Unfortunately, he'd walked really far in his anger marching, and so mm-hmm. it takes him a while to get home. But as he goes, he's imagining how they'll make up. They'll give her a kiss. They'll talk it out. Everything will be fine. But when he returns, she's gone, and there's a note. He says, goodbye. Make the best of what is left of your life. I will spoil it no more. She is gone. He looks for her. For weeks, he puts ads in the paper. The only thing he gets is a tramp said he saw a white lady on the cliff and a fisherman brought him a handkerchief with her name on it that he found on the beach. And so maybe she killed herself? Yeah, at that point, I thought for sure she'd either jumped from the cliff or maybe she planted the handkerchief on purpose on the beach and was purposely seen up there because she's good at being devious maybe and maybe it's another manipulative thing she's doing to to teach him a lesson or get him back i was hoping it was that so months went by he hired detectives to look for her the police also they couldn't find anything finally he gets a telegraph that reads come to me at once i am dying you must come ida and this is in appenshaw farm Melor, derbyshire and then he says i tell you there are some things that cannot be written about my life for those long months was one of them that journey was another 
Um, there are a few lines like that in here about that horrible hanging feeling of not knowing what's going on, waiting to get news about a loved one, and the repetition of this idea. There's really nothing to say about it mm-hmm. other than that it's horrible. There's yeah. there's no descriptors or metaphors or anything you could do to really explicate that kind of anxiety. And I agree. <laughs> totally. Uh, he jumps on a train. He gets to her as fast as possible. He can't believe that she's dying. He hopes that his love for her will keep her alive. When he gets to Appenshaw Farm, a woman answers the door. She asks if he is Arthur Marsh. He says he is. She says, you're an hour late. She's dead. You told me that this was a depressing story before I read it. So oh, yeah. I was prepared, but that hits me especially hard. You know, that idea of trying to get to somebody and they just don't make it. That happened with me and my father when he passed away. Yeah. I was on my way home to see him and yeah, I, I didn't make it in time. Mm. You know, it happened while I was on the plane. So I don't know. That, that got me in the gut. <laughs> of course it did. Chapter two. The, the maid asks Arthur in and offers him some tea, and he laughs, like a crazy laugh, not like, you know, like it was a funny joke. <laughs> no, he's got a little of the madness of grief going on. You know, yeah. when, you're in a, when you're in extreme despair like that, sometimes it's funny that people are doing anything normal. Mm-hmm. What do I want my tea? Who cares? Nothing seems to matter anymore. So she explains that she was Ida's nurse and that Ida told her to send for Arthur, but she doesn't know who he is. And he tells her that he is her husband. And she gets angry. Yeah. Uh, she says, then may God forgive you. What you've done, I don't know, but it'll be hard work forgiving you even for him. Like she thinks God won't even forgive him for whatever it is that she thinks that he did. With Venom, she explains that Ida came to her and told her to keep her hidden from the world, but never told her any details. He asked her why she didn't send for him sooner, to which the maid says, I would have never sent for you. Says that Ida was the kindest, most delightful soul, but she was so sad by what had happened. Ida was always looking at a picture of him and crying. Arthur begs her to stop telling him these things, but she ain't leaving him be. And there's lots of uh, dialect here. I thought I felt like I was back in Wuthering Heights, actually. <laughs> so many missing letters and apostrophes, but, it, but still good stuff. I shan't drop you out of them now. I know she was your own wedded wife as you chucked away when you tired of her and left her to eat her heart out with longing for you. I pray to God above us to pay you, Scott, and let you all for what you've done to her. I don't even know what that's saying. You killed my pretty. The price will be required of you, young man, even to the uttermost farthing. Oh, God in heaven, make him suffer. Make him feel it. She's really pulling down the curses on him. She is. So Arthur is so upset. He bites his lip and is bleeding. Like, he's he's just taking it because he feels so guilty for all the stuff and he feels like he deserves it. She keeps digging on him and he just quietly asks her for mercy, but she ain't giving him any. Mercy? You should have thought of that before. You had no mercy on her. She loved you. She died loving you. And if I wasn't a Christian woman, I'd kill you for it like the rat you are. That I would, though I had to swing for it afterwards. So, (laughs) for not knowing what happened exactly, she really has given him the business. But the odds are good that he deserves it. Yeah. The odds, yeah. in, in this case, I actually don't think he does deserve no, that he does level not. of abuse he does not at all. It was, a, it was a misunderstanding. Yes. Uh, he tells her that they loved each other, and now she's dead. He must keep loving her. He's the one that has to deal with it. She's dead. Mm. He's alive. Right. And he's freaking ripped apart by this. The whole thing was some stupid, stupid mistake. And at this, the maid softens a bit, and she takes him to see Ida's body. Yeah, that line, she died loving me, I have to live loving her. And it's her you pity. That that did its work on the maid. She mm-hmm. chills out a little bit. As she opens the door, he hears a baby cry, and she tells Arthur that that is his son. Oh, by the way, <laughs> that surprised me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. 
You know, in this case, I thought it was all right, but I, generally, I get kind of mad about that in fiction when there's a kid and the mother didn't tell the father until right. a certain time. Yeah, not in this case as much, but I think a lot of the time it's just narratively convenient. Like it'd be great for this character to suddenly have to confront what it's like to be a father. So we'll just introduce some new person who he got pregnant and who hid it from him till the child was four or five. And I'm yeah. always thinking that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Go through the whole thing. Just not tell this person. It's like unforgivable. It just makes me mad because I don't see it. I just don't see that happening so much. You know? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I've never known anybody that's kept a, a, a secret from a secret pregnancy. So I. I yeah. I, also, <laughs> also, it scares me. You know, <laughs> well, some gap tooth kid shows up here. He's like, hi, dad. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want that to ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> I wake up in the middle of the night. Get this kid! Ah! <laughs> oh, I'm safe in my childless room. Uh, so uh, the maid takes Arthur into the room and she begins to cry, saying that Ida looks beautiful even in death. He feels like he could wake her up with a kiss, so he kisses her, but her lips are cold and lifeless and she doesn't wake up. Yeah, and he says, I tell you again, there are some things that cannot be written. But I think that whole, the way that he describes the coldness... Yeah. It might be related to what happened to Fabian. So eventually the nurse drags him away. Arthur thinks that the nurse fed him at some point. Yeah. With her anger melting. He's just in a haze. He doesn't know what's going on anymore. I guess I ate a a sandwich or something. I'm not hungry, so maybe I've got some lettuce in my teeth. Something must have happened. (laughs) She puts him to bed in in the room next to Ida, and he hears the child, and the maid brings it to him. He holds it, but he doesn't feel any love for the child. She takes the baby away and he lies there, not sleeping through the night. I think she saw now that it was not the dead who are to be pitied most. So yeah. it says, I lay still and thought and thought and thought. And in those hours, I tasted the bitterness of death. It's late, like 2 a.m. And then he hears a sound coming from next door. It sounds like someone moving about in Ida's room and he becomes petrified with fear. Then, then the sound dies down. He says, at last, my tense muscles relaxed and I fell back on the pillow. You fool, I said to myself, dead or alive, is she not your darling, your heart's heart? Would you not go near to die of joy if she came to you? Pray God to let her spirit come back and tell you she forgives you. I wish she would come, I self-answered in words, while every fiber of my body and mind shrank and quivered in denial. Hmm. That made me actually kind of laugh a little bit just because he said, myself answered in words. I says to myself, I says, self, you know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> but words. this is also, uh, yeah, this is also that pet cemetery quandary or monkey's paw. Sure. You know, I want my loved one back, but what's the cost of mm-hmm. that? And it's one of the more primal motives that shows up in horror stories. So he lights a candle and then he hears the door next door open and then slow, heavy footsteps in the hallway. Then someone fiddles with his latch. You know, very suspenseful stuff here. Mm-hmm. Very good. Arthur stares at the door, frozen with fear. And he thinks, is this to be his punishment for what he did to her? Because he feels guilty. Like, he feels like he killed her. I knew well enough what would come in when that door opened. That door on which my eyes were fixed. I dreaded to look, yet I dared not turn away my eyes. The door opened, slowly, slowly, slowly. And the figure of my dead wife came in. It came straight towards the bed and stood at the bed foot in its white grave clothes with the white bandage under its chin. There was a scent of lavender. Its eyes were wide open and it looked at me with love unspeakable. I could have shrieked aloud. My wife spoke. It was the same dear voice that I had loved so to hear, but it was very weak and faint now, and now I trembled as I listened. You aren't afraid of me, darling, are you, though I am dead? 
I heard all you said to me when you came, but I couldn't answer. But now I've come back from the dead to tell you, I wasn't really so bad as you thought me. Elvira had told me she loved Oscar. I only wrote the letter to make it easier for you. I was too proud to tell you when you were so angry, but I'm not proud anymore now. You'll love me again now, won't you, now I'm dead? One always forgives dead people. So he cannot move. He is freaked out. Mm. And she says, you forgive me. You love me. Say you forgive me. Yeah. And then he goes, yes, I love you. I've always loved you. God help me. She sways kind of unsteady a bit and then moves towards him saying, I suppose you would be too afraid to kiss me now that I'm dead. And then that's it. Like that just pushes him over the edge. He screams and he screams and he covers his head with his sheet. And then it's quiet. He stops screaming and he hears something heavy fall and he runs out into the hall and he sees her body on the floor and he begs her, come back. I love you. Come back. But she is dead. Yeah. And again, it was his human foibles that caused this, that betrayed her. These primal emotions, you know, first he was so angry that blinded his reason, which caused her to leave. And here it's just fear. Yeah. Her coming towards him and asking for the kiss blinds him with fear so much that he, he rejects her in a way creates that rejection once again. Yeah. He says, Ida, my darling, come back. I'm not afraid. I love you. Come back, come back. I sprang to my door and flung it open. Someone was bringing a light along the passage on the floor outside the door of the death chamber was a huddled heap, the corpse in its grave clothes. Dead. 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 She is buried in Mella churchyard, and there is no stone over her. Now, whether it was catalepsy, as the doctor said, or whether my love came back, even from the dead, to me who loved her, I shall never know. But this I know, that if I had held up my arms to her as she stood at my bedfoot, and if I had said, yes, even from the grave, my darling, from hell itself, come back, come back to me. If I had had room in my coward's heart for anything but the unreasoning terror that killed love in that hour, I should not now be here alone. I shrank from her. I feared her. I would not take her to my heart. And now she will not come to me anymore. Why do I go on living? You see, there is the child. It is four years old now. And it has never spoken and never smiled. Oh, God. That's the end. Jeez, I, and I thought Space Time for Springers was depressing. This child is somehow a manifestation of all of the missed connections. Oh, God. misery of what this relationship became. Jeez. I, I wish that she had just told him that the affair of was course. going on, but I guess she thought the note would be instant proof and make it easier. I don't know, but it, it is sort of a juvenile yeah. mistake, you know? And I wish that he didn't go flipping crazy about it, but then also why did she just run away? Why didn't she just, you know, stick around yeah. for at least a day, you know? Give him some time to yeah. cool off. Like, she gave him nothing, you know? like Just a few hours and then she was out of there. She was gone. It was that thing where he said, you ruined my life that really maybe she always suspected that yeah he didn't love her the yeah. way that he knew but she didn't mm -hmm. it's almost I, it seems like a silly comparison but it's almost like gone with wind at the end when Rhett's waiting for scarlet while she's sick mm -hmm. and then ashley shows up he's like well i guess this is what she always wanted screw this and then when he leaves she calls out for Rhett. she doesn't want ashley at all mm -hmm. you know and then he's trying she's trying to convince him at the end but it's too late because it confirms something that he already suspected yeah and so that's on her part too that's the that's the flaw on her part yeah. She's, you know, not willing to listen. She's made up her mind how things are. Yeah, they're both really 
flawed. So what is it about the story that you find weird? Did she come back from the dead? Was it catalepsy? Yeah. What's going on with this kid? Yeah. What is that all about? There is an element of the other to the story that is subtle. And that, to me, is like perfect weird. Yeah, well, that last line is a killer. Yeah. It's four years old now, and it has never spoken and never smiled. I don't, do we, we don't even get the gender of the child, do we? It's, it doesn't have a personality. It's some kind of... Thing. Yeah, some kind of receiver of all of this misery made human that he has to now kind of protect and care for. Yeah. Otherwise, he'd be he'd be jumping off the cliff. Oh, God. It's a rough one, man. But I got to say, it's beautifully written. Yeah, it is. It's full of emotion. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't think about it as I was reading, and nope. I just wanted to know what was happening with these characters, and it really involved me. Agreed. On a deeper level than often happens. And, totally. You know, even if it's depressing, that's fantastic storytelling. Yeah. That we read it. It's really good. Good job, Edith. So next week, we stick with the Edith train. And we're going to do some Edith Wharton, a story called The Eyes. Yes, The Eyes. I want to thank Rachel Lackey for uh, reading for us this week. Oh, my God. She did such a great job. And you can hear more of Rachel on Rachel Watches Star Trek being awesome and very, very funny. Please tune into that. And they are also on Patreon. So that's something you might want to investigate supporting. Yeah. Being a Patreon supporter, I want to thank some of ours. Oh. I want to thank uh, Shanna Sin. Michael Byrne. Uh, there's a guy named Derek who supports us. Thanks, Derek. Anthony Jordan. Buzz Carter. Felix Lundstrom. Sean Hill. Lassie Boson. Stephen Luber. And Channing Carter. Thank you all so much for being supporters and allowing us to continue to do this show. You have taken part in depressing the crap out of both of us. Tonight. <laughs> you be very impressed with yourself. I, I do. No, I do appreciate it so much. Thanks for being part of the team. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. 